Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. Our talk show is also part of the Caregiving Podcast Network, and you can listen to all of our podcasters on our Blog Talk Radio page, which is blogtalkradio.com slash caregiving. It is Tuesday, March 6th. It's just about 10.30 a.m. Central Time. We've getting, we're getting some snow flurries here in Chicago, so we got a taste of spring this weekend, and then winter came back to let us know that really was just a taste. A couple quick updates for you. We're having a special event on caregiving.com on April 7th. That's a Saturday. It's the first Saturday in April. Our certified caregiving consultants will, will be available to you in our chat rooms on caregiving.com to connect with you, to share resources and ideas, to help you through a decision, to help you find the right solution. Our certified caregiving consultants will be available throughout the day, and you can connect with any of them for any length of time on April 7th. This is also a fundraiser for us. We are raising money for a national respite fund to help family caregivers initially get to our conference in November. And we're asking anyone who does connect with a certified caregiving consultant on April 7th to kick in a donation. The suggested donation amount is five bucks. It is only a suggestion. If you'd rather not, that's okay. And if you'd like to kick in more, that's okay too. Our certified caregiving consultants have had a personal caregiving experience and they've completed our training program. And through the training program, they've really worked on skills to help you communicate effectively with them. They listen, they ask great questions, they validate your experience, and then they're able to offer a suggestion, an idea, a resource that is right for your unique situation. We know that every caregiving situation has nuances and details that makes it unique. And as consultants, we work with you better understand your unique situation so that we can offer suggestions and ideas that are appropriate for you. So again, April 7th is Consulting for Good. Happens on caregiving.com in our chat room. You don't need to sign up. You just need to show up anytime, April 7th, between 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You can click the orange chat bubble you can go into a chat room and connect with one of our consultants. You could stay for five minutes. You can stay for five hours. Whatever it is that you need, we are completely flexible. And again, not only is this an opportunity to, for you to connect with one of our consultants, but it's also an opportunity for us to raise money for our National Caregiving Respite Fund. And the initial goal for the Respite Fund is to have family caregivers in need attend our conference without taking on any kind of financial liability. We want to offset the cost of coming to the conference for those who really can benefit from the conference but might have some financial limitations. You can find out more about Consulting for Good by just going to caregiving.com. And I think I'll just mention one other thing. Our training program for certified caregiving consultants Started this week for our eight-week virtual program. You can still sign up and join us. So when you join the eight-week program, you watch modules every week and then participate 
in a weekly conference call. If you think, I want to get through this faster, you can choose a fast-track option. And we have a couple options for you in April. You can join us in person in a Chicago suburb on April 6th, or you could join us virtually. You could join us on a Saturday, which is April 14th, or a Friday, April 20th. And you can learn more about that training program on caregiving.com. Okay, so let's bring our guest on today. So Claire Day is our dementia care expert. She is the chief program officer for the Alzheimer's Association, Northern California, and Northern Nevada chapter. So good morning, Claire. Thanks so much for being with us today. Good morning, Denise. Happy to be here. So we had our January show and talked about really planning for caregiving breaks, being proactive about the time that we take to get a break from caregiving. And because of that conversation, we entered into the dialogue around, oh, my gosh, but trying to find help that is trained and qualified to care for a family member with dementia can be a challenge. So we decided to at least talk about that challenge. Maybe we can't necessarily offer all the solutions, but at least let's talk about it on today's show. Okay, so this is a big one because it's not only training maybe family members to step in and help, but it's also finding qualified, trained, for instance, home health aides to come into our house to care for our carry in our absence. And it also could be finding a facility that has trained and qualified help who can care for our carry if we decide that, you know, we've got to move them into a a facility. I'm wondering, Claire, if you could give us some context around where are we going with training around dementia care? What's currently available? Yeah, so I, I think it is such a, a vital conversation for us to be having because, you know, my, I started my career in Alzheimer's in residential care facilities. I, I've worked in both um, skilled nursing facilities, so what we think of as those traditional nursing homes, and I've worked in uh, assisted livings. Um, and I, I can tell you that, and, and this was a long time ago uh, that I worked in those um, in those settings, but training there and today from what we see really is all over the place. Um, And part of that is, as you can imagine, uh, the turnover in the field of, of these, uh, this level of care that's provided is huge. And we, I believe that it's all part of it, right? If you're not training your staff and, and, and we're not, you know, they're not the highest compensated um, employees in the facility, in the building, um, you're, you're going to have that turnover. And so one thing that I've seen that's been a great shift over the last sort of three to five years is that states are taking action locally uh, to address training and, and staffing issues at a lot of these facilities. And what they're, what you know, what we saw was the movement after the 2011 passing of the National Alzheimer's Project Act, which, which was our first national plan to address Alzheimer's disease, that what trickled down from that were, were states following suit and developing their own state plans. Um, and so I would really encourage people to, 
to do a little search on their state that they're living in and find out if they have a state plan to address dementia um, and what that state plan is looking for, looking at, and, and what, what kinds of things is it, is it addressing. Because we've, we've done a lot of these focus groups, and, and I've, done, I've participated in a lot of programs over the years where we bring stakeholders and community members together. And nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, you hear from people, staff need more training. Staff aren't trained to understand what my loved one is going through. And it, it's, it, it seems simple, right? It seems like, oh, well, this is the answer. Like, it's the simple fix. If people don't understand the causes, the changes in the brain that's causing the changes in mood and behavior, they're not going to approach care in, in the same way. And we've addressed that on, on numerous calls and talked about communication techniques and why behaviors happen. Well, the same can apply to long-term care uh, facility workers, and, and, and most of them don't have any level of training whatsoever, maybe an hour of dementia training in their schooling, which I have to say most care aides receive more dementia training than physicians, but that's a whole other story on dementia. Oh, so, Claire. Yeah. That is so true. I never thought of that. Yeah. Oh, so, and, and we know the care, the care aides aren't receiving enough training, so, but that's a, that's a whole other show. We'll do that one another day. So what I think is the momentum that I see happening is state plans, and states are addressing this, either through their state plans or through even local legislation that is changing and mandating the types of training that facility staff require uh, are, are required to give and the length of time. Sometimes it's just about making sure. Um, I know when I worked in the state of Delaware, there was, a tra- there was a training already created. What we were able to do was make sure that um, it was like an annual training. Everybody had to go through like eight hours of continuing ed to keep up their license. What we were able to do through legislation was change it to mandate that at least two of those hours had to be dedicated to dementia. And so we're starting to see this, this change in the way we're approaching training. But then the next question becomes, but what does training look like and what does yes. good care look like? And, yeah. and what it can't just be taking a basics of Alzheimer's disease and understanding what's happening in the brain. That's part of it. But looking around, how are we focusing on putting the person first um, in all aspects um, of our care? And, and years ago, the Alzheimer's Association worked with uh, a number, um, like close to 50 um, agencies, national agencies like the um, National Assisted Living Soci- Associations and associations of nursing home uh, uh, administrators and those types of organizations to come up with something that they called the Dementia Practice, uh, practice Recommendations. Um, and in 2018, um, those organizations and the association have all gotten together and looked at them and said, are they still relevant? And yes and no. And what do we need to do to make sure that they're fresh and changed? Um, and so they released um, something called um, the, um, all the Dementia Care Practice Recommendations, which um, 
cover sort of nine or eight, eight, eight areas of the core of quality care focused around a person-centered approach. Now, we've been talking about person-centered care for years, um, and now these recommendations look at all aspects of care from detection and diagnosis, assessment and care planning, medical management, information education and support, ongoing care for behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, and support for activities of daily living, staffing, supporting in therapeutic environments, and transitions and coordination of services all through a person-centered approach to care. Um, and I think this can be a really great starting point for facilities that are looking to um, really refresh or regenerate um, their training. And, and facilities will actually have the opportunity to have um, some of their core training programs uh, reviewed and to make sure that they meet these, these, um, these core pieces of, of quality care. So where we're going is, I think, a uniformed, um, agreed-upon way that we've been able to develop and better define what quality care looks like across care settings and throughout the disease course. Um, and now what care providers will be able to do is make sure that they're following these practice recommendations, which I have to say, a lot of them probably are, but what I really like about this is, is it also talks about um, detection and diagnosis, not just um, for people who have been diagnosed already, because we know that, and medical management because we often hear, well, you know, um, from from healthcare providers or from even from families that aren't seeing other medical things that can go wrong with a person, because dementia is always in the forefront. It's it's like the the front seat driver that's always taking control, and everything else gets stuck in the back, um, and sometimes missed, not because of poor care, not because of um, people ignoring it, but just because sometimes what's happening with the dementia is so right there in your face that you sometimes can easily miss um, some of the other symptomatic things that may be an, another condition that could be easily treated and, and fixed that could improve um, health and well-being of the person living with the disease. So it addresses that in there as well. So I think what we're going to start to see is that facilities are going to find find ways to um, bring this person-centered approach into their training. And like I said, many care facilities do. And, and I think, you know, the other part that we talked about is a care facility is, is, is only, is, it doesn't matter what the walls look like, what the furniture looks like. It doesn't matter whether they're part of a big chain that has a, a great reputation or a terrible reputation. The facility is only as good as the staff that are working there, and that starts at the top. Um, and works all the way down, and I've worked in both facilities, um, one for seven years and one for five months. You can guess which one had the good top-down leadership. Um, and so I think, you know, pe I think people immediately go to this sort of feeling that, um, that long-term care is, is always going to be bad, and it's, it's not always that way. 
and it is there are some really key steps that people can do to look to to find out whether or not it's a good facility and to find out what that philosophy is from the top down. Um, but I also see that families and advocates are going to be the ones pushing for these types of legislative trainings that are going to mandate that the person delivering care and love to their loved one is going to be properly trained um, and given the tools that they need to be able to, to appropriately care for someone with dementia in these types of settings. That was a lot of talking. I'm so sorry. It's, no, it's so interesting. And really what we're kind of alluding to is the level of trust. Who can we trust to take care of our family member? On, our, on caregiving.com, one of our members cares for her mom who has PPA, and I never remember what yeah. PPA stands for. However, it's a, it's a dementia, and her mom has lost the ability to communicate. She, she just has lost her, her speech. So it is, a, it is part of, I, it, would you consider that to be part of the FTD um, dementia diagnosis? Um, is it PPA? Yeah. Or is it PBA? It's two P's and an A. Two P's and PPA. an A. Um, you, you know what? I'm not. I don't think. I. I don't. Is it considered to be a type of frontal frontal lobe? Um, I, I mean, I think, I think it's it's the the aphasia is what is so yes. uh, predominant yes. with PPA is that um, p- people just lose that ability to communicate early on. Um, I'm not sure if uh, it may be frontal lobe related. I'm not entirely sh- sure, um, but I think it would be. I think it's considered its own form of degeneration, um, but probably has um, a lot of similarities to to frontotemporal because that's where we see that sort of communication breakdown um, early on in the disease. Um, but it's you know it's it's that loss of language function. Um, Earlier on in the in the in the process, where um, you talk about the need to have someone trained and understanding yes. how to recognize yes. the difference between verbal and nonverbal communication in someone yes. that um, is not able to um, articulate the way you and I articulate, but yet they still have needs. They still yes. definitely have major needs. Um, and um, so without understanding so and I think that's a great example so you know aphasia can be can be some a symptom of many types of dementia with primary progressive aphasia which is what PPA stands for um, that's the main that's the main symptom Um, and um, so if someone doesn't even know what aphasia is or doesn't understand the difference in communication techniques between someone who can respond to yes and no questions um, and respond to yes and no questions using words, you're going to have a problem from the beginning. So there's there's – you know, it's that sort of understanding of, okay, so this person can't communicate with me the way you and I communicate. That doesn't mean that they can't communicate their needs. What it means is they may not be able to communicate them using words. So what are we looking for? Do we know 
about have we looked at their body language do we do we think about um, their facial expressions and and things things about them that they can communicate non-verbally um, that can really tell us a lot so I think it just really speaks to how does training encompass all the various needs of all the individuals diagnosed with a dementia and do are we moving into a situation where we could have companies that provide home health services that have a specialty in a certain type of dementia and then facilities interestingly enough who are now specializing in dementia care become even more specialized yeah <laughs> how's that for an answer <laughs> So I I think um, so I think the first answer to your question is I think we've got to start somewhere with training and there are a lot of there are a lot of opportunities for us to improve the way we deliver training to care professionals across the continuum so whether they're home care workers home health aides certified nursing assistants working in home cares, so in someone's home versus someone who lives in a, working in a facility, I think we have opportunities there to even start with some of the basics. I think that facilities, um, and I've seen facilities that can do a really good job when there's some of these not as common types of dementia coming to live in their facilities of preparing their staff for the for the difference of what that might look like compared to um, a, a typical dementia resident who who is still you know like and and I think your your um, your example of PPA is a great example of that it's it's usually a, a younger onset it's usually it's not as common um, and I think. Families need to advocate for facilities learning and understanding the needs of their family member. Now, I am totally realistic and and don't want people to assume that you're going into a facility means you're going to get one-on-one care just like you had at at home. I think I think part of what families um, need to do in preparing for that next phase of care is really understanding what what good care looks like, what you should what your expectations should be, um, because that helps you to not be um, to, to ease in that transition where if your expectations are all the way at the top and they're delivering the middle, you're automatically going to start off on the wrong foot. And I think it's really important for families to understand, what the expected um, care is and, and how, um, how that care should be delivered and, and what that should look like. Um, and there's ways that we can help families get there. But I think the other piece is also making sure that um, the staff are understanding of what's different between your loved one and someone else because that is – information that is vital to know. And and I've worked with CNAs over the years, certified nursing assistants over the years, who it's like a light bulb. When they, when they understand, all of a sudden they see what they're doing and how they can do it differently that will have a different outcome, 
the motivation to do it right is so there, and yet there's sometimes a little bit of a fear in them that um, I used to have CNAs that would not talk to the family members because they thought they'd get in trouble. Uh, yeah. And, right. and so we talk yeah. about that in a lot of our training. We talk to CNAs about how they are the key to good care delivery in a, in a long-term care setting. You can have the, the smartest nurses, the best social workers, the most brilliant MBA nursing home administrators, but if your certified nursing assistants don't know how to do their job because you haven't given them the tools to do it, you're nowhere. And so it's really, I think that's the piece that families can help um, bridge. Um, and, and I got really off track, and I can't remember your other two questions now. Oh, well, that's okay. It just goes back to trust. We worry that we can't trust who's going to come in and take care of our family member or who's going to take care of our family member in a facility because we can't trust that they understand this particular individual's disease process. And I just wonder, how do we create training that educates around the different types of dementia yeah. and, and gives the direct care worker the flexibility and how they care for each individual? Well, and I think part of that is including them in the care plan so that they, they are empowered to have that flexibility. And I think creating a care plan that's actually um, a working tool and not something that's done because it has to be done. Um, care plans are a great opportunity, and with um, uh, you know, with, with the electronic medical records now, are easier for people to access key pieces of those that care plan that can have those types of steps in it to to say, um, you know, this person. Um, does not respond to this, and mm. so try this, this, mm-hmm. and this. Um, and 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 I think it. What really also is a great opportunity. The the more we think about training the right staff, the more satisfied they're going to be in their job. The more they're going to stay at one facility over the next, and you're going to be able to build that continuity, um, and that continuity for the not just for the team but for the residents as well and, and making sure that um, there is a little bit of consistency in, in who's providing that care um, so that you really get to learn and know who your, who your residents are that you're taking care of so that you can meet those needs. Yeah. I, I often wonder if our processes and our systems in place in a facility, for instance, allow for that kind of flexibility. Certainly it happens during the care conference, but then once it happens out on the floor when you are pressed for time or there's one particular resident that needs more than another one that particular day, oh my gosh, I, I, you know, the solutions are not easy. And I think that's a valid. I think that's a valid reality of what happens in long-term care. So that's that's again going back to what are those expectations, and and but what also is the minimum standard of care that needs to be provided. Um, and I think the other piece is that the more the more we're able to um, 
there are facilities that have managed to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so let's let's find those facilities and 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 look at a good model and and then figure out how to replicate it. Um, yeah. Because there are facilities that have figured it out. I think for next month, I'd love to continue that statement that you made at the beginning of the show, which is our certified nursing assistants receive more dementia care training than our physicians. (laughs) I love to talk about that. Um, We know that physicians oftentimes might not disclose a diagnosis, even though there has been a a diagnosis of dementia. So there's a lot around the physician role in quality care, including their their knowledge of a disease process. And let's face it, the other part of it too is a physician can make a diagnosis easier or harder. And because we have a community on caregiving.com of persons who care for a family member with FTD, we hear on a regular basis that the road to a diagnosis was rocky, winding, and awful. And it's, it starts with the physician. So what do you think about that for a topic next month? I, I, think, that's, I think that's a great topic to talk about because I think there's, there's, again, we're starting to see this movement of how, how can community organizations approach health systems in a different way to get to, this, to, get to the heart of this issue because it's not going to happen um, – with one-on-one visits to physicians' office, providing them with information on diagnostic tools, and it's not going to happen um, without um, without health systems buying into the need for um, better diagnosis, um, accurate diagnosis, and, and early detection. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Claire. This was this was fascinating to me because I think it really it made me think about training in a much more complex way. It's not just about a one-hour one hour in-service seminar, you know, twice a year. Yeah. We're really oh, looking no, at... no, Yeah, we really need to look at... It's really equipping our, our professionals who provide care with strategies that they can use when they're caring yeah. for a family, yes. a, a family member with dementia. And I yep. think if we can shape if we shape that conversation around change around training to strategies, I think it changes how we train and that can be quite effective. Mm, okay. You got it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. This is great. Thank you as always. And thanks so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing. Cause we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.